Boom. Good morning. Good morning. On today's podcast, I have special guest, Arye Scheinbein. Arye, whose given name is derived from the Hebrew word meaning lion, passionately helps successful business owners and entrepreneurs invest their money intelligently, allowing their wealth to accumulate so they can stay focused on what truly matters, their business and mission. If you want to grow your wealth, have a listen. Have you ever had negative thoughts in your mind that you aren't good enough, that you'll never be successful? If so, you're not alone. I've had those thoughts playing in my mind ever since I took the leap to become an entrepreneur. It's a dirty, dark secret that no one likes to talk about as the glamorization of becoming an entrepreneur is shown in the media. I realized that in order to succeed, I needed help. We all do. So I decided to go all in on myself, spending thousands of hours in the trenches, reading, joining groups, listening to podcasts, hiring coaches to develop a bulletproof morning routine for success. Join me on my journey as together we build our morning fire to ignite our lives as entrepreneurs. My name is Jeff Wickersham, and this is the Morning Fire for Entrepreneurs podcast. Welcome to the Morning Fire for Entrepreneurs podcast. I am excited to have special guests with us today, Arye Scheinbein. Arye, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me. I am looking forward to this as well. Absolutely. So I love getting into state. So let's do a little priming exercise where we do three power breaths in, in through the belly, up to the chest. We'll raise our hands above our head. Let's go ahead and breathe in and out. Good. Another breath in and out. Final breath in and out. All right, now we're going to get a little energy booster up. I'm going to count down three, two, one. At the end of it, we're going to yell boom at the top of our lungs in three, two, one, and boom. boom. There you go. I appreciate you. Appreciate you playing along. I always say energy, excitement, enthusiasm, nothing great can be accomplished without those. So let me ask you, morning habits, rituals, routines, I feel are the foundation for success personally and professionally, right? They start our days. What are one or two things you do every morning that really takes you down or starts you down that path towards success? Sure. Uh, so it's interesting because I think um, it's definitely evolved over time. Um, and I think every person needs to kind of find the things that really work for them. Um, so with that as, as a framework and, and being said, uh, the things I do in the morning are I have, um, I take time for gratitude. And I used to actually do that at night. I would kind of like write and I tried to have like for a year, I had my kids do it with me. Like we would do, a everybody had a gratitude journal. Okay. It was, it was a very interesting experiment. But what I found was um, the gratitude, first of all, if you start your day with it, it reframes your whole mindset of how to think about things. Are you in a positive mood or are you in a negative mood? Um, and so the other thing about it that I've tweaked is a lot of these journals or blank journals basically say like, what are three things you're you know, grateful for? Right. But what I've kind of come to realize is if you can even pick one that you are grateful for today, and it's because otherwise you end up with like a lot, like if I read my kids, which some of them let me read their stuff, you end up with a lot of rep repetitive things, right? Like I'm, I'm thankful for my health. I'm thankful for my family. And, and we should be. Right. But if you can focus on one thing today, then you actually a lot of times 
And you could do it at the end of the day. It's not necessarily a negative, but if you can focus on that one thing, then it just reframes it and makes it a little bit more tangible and, and more real. Um, and so that's that's item number one. Uh, the other thing is I I do also um, you know pray um, every morning. So that I think also kind of talks a little bit to the gratitude um, and kind of goes through it. But uh, those those are probably the number you know, number one, number two, and then the other thing that. I used to be not so great at, and now I think I'm a little bit better at in, in that is, um, I drink anywhere from eight to 24 ounces of water, you know, pretty early on in the day, like almost right away or as soon as I can. Yeah. I love, I love those, the water. I do the same thing right when I wake up, right. I've got a glass already filled when I come downstairs and to your point related to gratitude, I, I love doing it in the morning and, and I would echo your sentiments where many times what I'm writing is repetitive, what I'm grateful for. And I always do it with a smile, but I always have one thing that I change, right? One item that is different from kind of the repetition of my family, my health, all those. And that, that really allows me to get in that state. And it's a, it's a incredibly powerful way to start your day. So, so definitely aligned with you there. So Aria, tell, tell, tell listeners and, and share a little bit of background. I know we're going to get into building wealth for, for business owners and entrepreneurs, definitely a critical component. If you're, you're out there working hard, you want to be able to have your wealth building behind the scenes, but, but give a little background on your history, your, your work experience, your, your, your career. And, and then we'll get into that. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'll try and do the super short version. Uh, went to college, got a degree in finance, went straight to work on Wall Street at an investment bank, JP Morgan, and uh, took on a career in finance and spent you know the better part of the last and probably more than the last two decades um, working either at some of the you know what's called the prestigious investment banks or uh, funds. Whether they were, I've worked at venture capital firms, I've worked at private equity firms, I've worked at hedge funds, um, okay. and. And even to this day, I still consult with a lot of those uh, large firms to help them value businesses, value their investments in non-publicly traded businesses or securities of, of any sort. Um, and you know, along the way, probably almost out of the gate, I had side businesses in the evenings, at night, even before like side hustling was kind of like a thing. Okay. Um, and so I was very early to e-commerce, probably uh, two thousand and one ish. And, um, as I started to really get into those businesses, I learned a lot more about marketing and customer experience and, you know, just really not just how to develop the business, but much more about the, the psychology and the marketing side. And I guess I've always been this, uh, lack of a better word, intellectually curious. Okay. And sometimes that leads you in a path that you have a lot of information about something you don't do, which is not always so good. Um, but hopefully you take that information and you use it, um, and apply it. And what I found was that as I, I kind of dealt with more and more online entrepreneurs or small business owners, not even necessarily online, mm -hmm. um, that my, my career and my experience in the investment world and in the valuation of businesses and understanding levers of businesses was something that um, a lot of people just didn't have. Like okay. if you take your standard uh, entrepreneur who may or may not have gone to school, may or may not have had formal training in a corporate environment. It's irrelevant. Most of them, though, got into the business for one reason or another. They were solving, looking to solve a problem that either was a personal problem or a problem that they saw in the marketplace. And most of the time, it's now, in today's world, I, I wouldn't say this 20 years ago, but now it's, hey, I don't want to work for a company. I want to work for myself, right. which 20 years ago wasn't like a thing because it wasn't so easy. Right now, you can take out your phone and like, boom, you have a business, you know? Right. Um, and so 
most of these people just they want to make money to pay the bills. They want to live on their own. They want whatever it may be. And so they didn't know all the things they didn't know specifically around how to take the money that they've um, done well in with in their business or have generated in their, their active income and make it work for them. And it's not taught in schools. It's not a, you know, a, a life skill that everybody's like born with or stuff like that. Right. And so people just started coming to me over and over and over again. And it finally dawned on me that like, I should probably set something up to help people with this. And, um, you know, that is like my outside of all my other things. That is like one of the things that I focus on now. Gotcha. Okay. So experience in the investment banking world, right? Finance world, a lot of experience and then saw a need right out there and a lot of people coming to you. So as let's say you are a new entrepreneur, new business owner, solopreneur, have some varying degrees of success, have some cash at your disposal. What are a couple quick strategies to implement, to start having your wealth build behind the scenes for you, right? You're not touching it. It's building. What what are a couple of things that you, that you would recommend? Yeah. So I, I think um, number one, one of the most important things is understanding the concept of a compounding interest mm-hmm. and and it doesn't have to be per se in the form of interest right like if you go to your bank today right the banks are giving you less than one percent they're probably giving you less than 50 basis points which is a half a percent um they're right. probably giving you if you're lucky like 0.1 percent, right and historically though that wasn't what banks gave you um and in a brief synopsis how does a bank work they take deposits in from you and me right we put our money in the bank they go and then they lend it out at a higher rate so historically mortgages were let's say six or seven percent or car loans six to eight percent they would take your money they'd give you one percent two percent three percent and they would lend it out at six seven eight nine ten whatever it is now uh interest rates at a all-time lows for many years um and so they lend it out at three four five percent and so they say yeah five on you Thanks for giving you the money and have a good one. Right, right. Right. So, but conceptually, like compound interest is the idea of the things will continue to grow. So if you mm-hmm. take $100, you get 10% on it. You now have $110 and that grows at 10% and so right. on and so forth. Right. So then you have 121 and, and so on. And so first and foremost, if you sit on your money and it's doing nothing, it's losing value, especially right. in, you know, we're, we're recording this in uh, December of 2021 uh, inflation as anyone who, yeah. you know, sees anything is jacked high, right? Like haven't right. seen in 40, 50 years, whatever it is. Right. And so that aside, let's leave that out of the equation and not make this a conversation around that, but just the conceptually a standard 3% inflationary rate means if your money is sitting under your mattress, it's losing money. So the first thing is, is like, hey, what do you have to do? You have to make sure your money is actually working for you. Okay, step one. Good. Everyone agrees. Now, what do we do? So we can do a number of things. We can use the stock market. And some people are always afraid of losing the money. They're all afraid about losing the money. Everybody's always afraid. Now, rule number one, you can always make more money. Okay. Um, You can't make more time, but you can make more money. Very true. And so therefore, if we screw it up, it's fine. Don't, Don't lose like, you know, sleep over it. But I also tell people that the reality is, is that um, you want to know it's personal finance because the word personal, you need to know your personality and what risks you're willing to take um, to to get certain rewards and how much time you want to spend on these things. So in terms of how much money to put aside, first and foremost, I tell most people like, hey, you really want to have like three to six months of expenses put aside. Mm -hmm. So kind of like know what it costs you to live a year 
and have one or at least on a monthly basis and then have one to three months put aside that money i would generally say don't be investing into the stock market because yeah we've had an amazing bull run for you know 12 13 years outside of the dip that we saw in, in you know beginning of covid but right. there's volatility it doesn't necessarily have to go up it can go down and people you know kind of need to recognize that so in today's market, there's actually platforms that you can actually get real interest on things. Um, if you're a small business owner, you actually can have a, there's a bank called Bluevine. You, they actually are giving like 1%, which is shocking um, in today's world. You know, like an ally bank only gives you like a half a percent right now, but like Bluevine is a business bank that will actually give you money on, on your business account. But okay. even in the crypto space, um, I'm not, you know, there's a lot of value in, in investing in crypto, but there's something called a stable coin. And a stable coin is something that's tied, it's pegged to the US dollar. I mean, they have it pegged to other currencies as well. Right. But you can actually earn real interest. We're talking like five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12% in something that is not volatile. Um, yeah, is it FDI? It's not an FDIC insured. Okay. But understand your personal risk tolerance and you can earn real money on that. But if you go back to the the money of the, the stock market, and you're like, I don't have time for this. I don't know if you buy the S&P 500 index. So you can get it either in a mutual fund or in a, in a um, ETF, an exchange traded fund that works mm -hmm. more like a stock. You can dollar cost average, meaning every month just deposit X percent, you know, 10% of your money into this thing. And it's just going to compound. Yep. You'll have downs, you'll have ups. And that's why we do it every single month. So gotcha. when it's high, we're buying. When it's low, we're buying. We're just constantly putting money to work. And therefore, it's not like lump sum, I bought at the peak, now I'm screwed because we're at the bottom, right? Right. right. So we're constantly doing that. Um, so those are a couple of things that like off the top of my head, you know, rattling off. I and mean, there's a whole lot of other things, but those are those are the first you know, few things. There's so many things you could do with money to have that money make money, but it's a function of risk tolerance and time focus on this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would also ask the question, right, then, then it's a percentage or it's an amount that you want to do. You, you just said dollar cost averaging every single month. I'm sure you recommend do it automatically, having taken out of an account so you don't have to rely on yourself. Yep. It's, it's Parkinson's law, right? It'll be removed from your bank account. You won't miss it. You'll just adjust a, accordingly. And then it, then it becomes that, that automatic thing. Literally the, the wording that I use, I explain okay. to people Parkinson's law. If, if yeah. you have $5,000 a month and then you only get 4,500, you will make it work on the 4,500 and therefore take it out before you even notice, make it automatic. So spot on. Got you. Okay. So stocks, right. That, that piece, the, the market, you, you also mentioned, uh, mentioned the stable coin. What about real estate? So I'll, I'll just share personally, I've been an investment property owner now for 17 years with my brother own eight properties that that has some cash flow and some some wealth building yep. opportunities. What what about real estate? How do you how do you tackle real estate or recommend that to to people that you you speak to? Totally. So I'm a huge advocate of real estate. Um, the challenge is so you made a very uh, interesting distinction that you mentioned, right? You have uh, I think you said seven or eight properties, but mm -hmm. the wording was with my brother, and I don't know if he does it full time. And I don't know if you do it, but but typically my issue with single family homes is the cash flow is very low. Mm -hmm. um, it's not going to, it's not life altering, which is not a, necessarily a negative, right? Like the person is paying the rent and therefore it's paying down your mortgage. So you're building right. equity and, and value there. Um, the challenge is who is actually managing these things. And if you are outsourcing the management, you now have to manage your manager 
And if you're not outsourcing it, are you taking reserves for the new roof that's going to happen every you know, 10, 20 years or the boiler that's going to break or these kinds of things? Or are you going to get called in the middle of the night when the sink's not working in the toilet or whatever it is? So understanding the roles and responsibility that come along with it, um, because I think a lot of people are like, hey, let me just go buy this property here. Let me go buy this property there. A, they don't understand the numbers component. And like, for example, someone sent me uh, recently, hey, there are these two houses for sale. I don't know, call it like $150,000. What do you think? Oh, and they told me the rent. So I knew what the, right. the income side was. Right. So I back of the envelope. I'm like, okay, you know, you're going to purchase it for that. So I know the state was is going to basically take a percentage on your new purchase price. So that's going to be your new tax bill. So your mm -hmm. monthly taxes are going to be, let's say, $500 on this thing. And then assume your utilities are going to be, I don't know, $200 on this thing. And now if you're going to lever it up and take a mortgage of 20 per, you know, 80% on the property. So you're going to have a mortgage of X dollars. So I said to them, I'm like, listen, they're going to make, you know, let's say $100 a month in rent of prop, net profit. Right. Um, you're going to have to bank the first, I don't know, one to three years to have a reserve account for any expen capital expenditures that kind of come about. And so your cash on cash return. So the way I calculate cash on cash is like how much cash flow you're getting or how much cash you put in. Right. 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 Um, and I said, it's going to be about 3%. So does that sound interesting to you? And they're like, oh my God, that's terrible. And I'm like, well, you know, it, it is low. It's not what I would want in an investment property, but keep in mind, you're going to build equity and do these things. Like, does this fit for you? Now for me, that, that's a negative. Like I'm not interested, but if I have a brother who's like, Hey, I'm going to find the property. I'm going to hustle. I'm going to this. I'm going to, well, now I know I can trust this person. Mm -hmm. I'm willing to do that. Like it changes the dynamic tremendously, right? So the way I go about real estate is I generally participate in 200 unit um, apartment buildings, Gotcha. And it's what we would call like a syndication. Mm -hmm. I know the operator. I've dealt with them over time. That's their full-time job, right? They're right. going to manage this building. Yes, they will take a split of some of the profits. But if I can earn 7, 8, 9, 10% cash on cash a year, plus mm -hmm. maybe refinance the property and get my money back in, you know, over the next three to five years, or just wait on it and then get it on the sale in five, 10, you know, years, whatever it is. Right. That to me is also very attractive. So you have to know yourself and start to understand these things. But I'm, I'm a big proponent of real estate because, you know, I get the question a lot, and specifically in this market of like, hey, how do we combat inflation? Right. Mm -hmm. And people naturally are like, oh, I, I'm I'm a proponent. Let me let me state I'm a proponent of, of crypto, and I believe in Bitcoin and these kinds of things. And I think the future of finance is very DeFi, uh, decentralized finance. But okay. that being said, that being said, Bitcoin does not generate any income. It's just like gold was in the in the past, right? It right. is designed to be an inflationary hedge where it's a store of value. And the issue is is that. Yes, if it maintains its value or it appreciates, you have either increased your, your value or you've hedged against inflation. Cash flowing assets, though, by definition, are a hedge against inflation because whether it's your own personal business, so if you're an entrepreneur and you have your own business or you're a business owner and whatever it is, or if you have real estate or things like that, so self-storage, multifamily, any of these things, Right. The way you combat that is you can increase rent, you can increase pricing, right? So you right. have the inflationary lever that just like the store, you go in the milk used to be two fifty a gallon and now it's three fifty or four dollars right. a gallon or whatever it is. Right. They did the same thing, right? So in your business, your services used to cost two thousand dollars a month. Now, well, it's twenty two hundred a month or twenty five hundred a month. So you have that lever. The same with real estate, you have the lever. And so even if the values kind of fluctuate or whatever it is, the cash flow, if you can raise the the pricing in line with inflation, then you have an asset that's going to be 
hedged off or kind of in you know beat the inflation. So hopefully that answered all the all the question on that. It definitely did. And I, I loved how you framed that up, right? That that lever. And I, I I take that back to control, right? You then have some semblance of control over that piece related to to inflation. And I will say back to the real estate point of you know, owning properties with my brother and that distinction, that that is a very big distinction because actually when we got into it, I was in the corporate world, wasn't running my own business. And and for many years, I'd probably say eight or nine years as we were starting, you know, we were doing the work all ourselves, right? And it was every weekend, you know, up renovating a, an apartment or a property. And, and now we've gotten to the point where we have somebody that do, does all that for us from a yeah. maintenance perspective. It's more I maintain the books. He does the tenant tenant relations, those those pieces. But you know, to your point, investing and I've I've had a couple couple people on the podcast that do that type of investing that that you alluded to, and that's a great way to get your money in, have it work for you, but have it be somebody else's business, right? Which is the key yeah. key piece to it. So love right. that. And, uh, and it's funny the way you described yours. It's almost if you think about it, right? It is another business. Yes, it's real estate. Yes, it's an investment. But you're running a business, right? Seven or eight properties. You're running a business. You have an employee who's dealing with the maintenance stuff. You have a role of the accounting. Your brother has a role, tenant relationship. So you're you're operating another business. Yeah, that and that's a clear distinction because I will tell you. When we weren't, we were cre- we when we were first starting out, it was like a hobby, right? And and until we took it serious, had weekly calls, and really ramped up the business aspect of it, is when it became much more profitable. So there's a direct direct correlation there for for sure. So let's get into you had mentioned white labeling a little bit, and I am not familiar with the topic, so I would love for you to share with the audience what that means and why we should be doing it. Okay, so white labeling can be done in many different facets, right? So um, the way I started, so to back up, right? One of the things I have is I have a number of e-commerce businesses. Okay. And um, when I started uh, selling things, I started buying things wholesale from manufacturers and I was just reselling it as their brand. So I would go to Procter & Gamble and I say, hey, let me sell Bounty, you know, for an example. I didn't, but in theory, right? Mm -hmm. And so someone goes on Amazon, they're searching for Bounty, right? They're not searching for uh, Jeff and Arie's paper towels, right? Right, They're looking for Bounty, the quicker picker upper, right? Right. And because Procter & Gamble spends $500 million on ads that kind of seeped into our brains for many years. Right. and so that was how I kind of started with it. And I viewed that as just a cash flow business. It was right. just like anything else. Like I was putting a dollar in, I was taking a dollar out or dollar twenty-five or dollar fifty, whatever it is. And it felt different than let's say the investment world of stocks, because I was again going back to the point you made, control, right? I had a lot of control over certain things, not everything, but right. but certain things. And um, then the game got a little bit more competitive, which it was no surprise. Margins compressed a little bit. A lot of people started getting into it. People were being understood that, hey, look, I could do this. And um, one of the things, though, was I started having, you know, kind of getting more niched down into okay. certain uh, product areas and, and, you know, categories. And I started having exclusive relationships with manufacturers where okay. I said, listen, everyone's going to come to you to try and sell your stuff let me be either one of one or one of two, maybe one of three. And we'll hold what's called like MAP, which is minimum advertised pricing, where we will not sell like, hey, they'll sell it to us. In wholesale, there's something called like in in the retail space, it's called keystone pricing, meaning you go to a manufacturer and they basically say, well, we want this thing to be sold for 50 bucks, we'll sell it to you for 25. And so 50 cents on the dollar type of thing. And the 
idea is that you will hold what they call MAP, minimum advertised pricing, because they don't want, um, especially like small mom and pop uh, stores to sell something for $50. And then the customer comes in and says, I can go to Amazon and buy it for 42 because right. that stinks because then the manufacturer is no longer going to get to sell to the local retailer. Right. Um, or, and that's why they get upset with like Target or Amazon themselves if they're just dropping the prices, right? So they have this agreement of, hey, we don't want it sold below here. And okay. it's not about gouging or anything like that. It's just simply about um, price integrity for a product. And even with that, so, so that was good because now you, you keep from you know, them having like 50 sellers on there. You want mm -hmm. to be an exclusive. Okay. But what we found was um, specifically in certain niches and certain product lines where we were like, hey, instead of us going and manufacturing our own in China or going somewhere else, we really like this product. Are you willing to sell us the same product and put our label on it? Okay. Now, if you think about Costco, right? So they have a Kirkland brands, right? Yep. So I don't think Costco makes their own ketchup, but they go to Heinz or they go to Hunts and they say, do us a favor. Um, you're already manufacturing a million bottles of widgets or whatever it is, right? Like right. ketchup. Will you make one for us? Now they may, Heinz may say, go fly kite. We're 57 varieties. No way. Hunts <laughs> may say, sure. Right. What the heck? I don't know. I don't use any of them. But the point is, is that in the food industry in particular, it's a very common thing. Like any groceries, no matter where you live in the country, right? Whether you have Kroger's, whether you have Publix, whether you have ShopRite, again, depending, you know, uh, Stop and Shop, depending on where you live in the country, um, there's probably a branded, um, you know, in-store, generic, whatever you want to use the word, right. um, brand. Now, some of these, I think Costco actually is, is one of the examples actually where they have gotten into the manufacturing game themselves. But for the most part, most businesses don't. They simply okay. white label. So what do they do is they take, they go to the manufacturer and they're like, we're going to guarantee you 100,000 units purchased under our brand a year and just make it for us. Literally, they don't change the formula at all. They just kind of do it, slap a label on and done. So in e-commerce, we got into this that, um, so a lot of people will use the word private label, which basically means like I, you know, I, I see an iPhone and I say, Hey, make me an iPhone. And I go to a manufacturer out in China and I try and replicate the thing. Now, obviously iPhone's a bad example, but you get it right. Like right. Maybe like a, a Yeti bottle or something like this, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, make me my own thing. That's private label where I'm going to probably tweak it and they're trying to replicate something. White labeling gotcha. is where I'm going to the person who actually makes it. And so say to them, will you make the exact same thing for me with my branding on it? Okay. Now, some some companies are like, heck no. Like Yeti, like I would never do that for you because I'll, I'll let you, here, I'll let you put your name on it, but right. uh, it's going to still have my name on it, right? Like I, right. that's my brand. That's my equity. Gucci would never do that, right? Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of businesses who are like, listen, we just, we're in the production business. We don't really care. We just want to sell the units. And so right. if you want to pay us with yours, that's fine. So let's extrapolate that. Okay. So this is good for e-commerce, physical goods, all this stuff. But you can have this in other businesses as well. So for example, let, let's even use your example of you and your brother. Okay. Mm -hmm. Someone comes to you and says, hey, I want to buy a single family home. I don't know what the hell I'm doing though. Can you basically out, can I outsource my management to your staff? And you have a white label service where your customer doesn't, his customer doesn't know it's your team, right? but it's basically an outsourced model and that's white labeling. So gotcha. we see that a lot in like digital agencies, right? So I have a graphic designer on staff, but they're not fully utilized or I have capacity or whatever it is. And someone comes to me and says, Hey, 
I have an agency, but I don't have a graphic designer. Can I use yours or you're great at Facebook ads and I'm not, can right. I white label under you, right? We see this in the software space. There are a lot of companies that the model is strictly that they offer it out to people in what, what would be deemed like a reseller license. And that's white labeling in effect, where you say, hey, I want um, you know, StreamYard's kind of technology. So StreamYard, obviously, right, they let you kind of brand your stuff if you have a premium account. Right. But maybe I want to offer StreamYard and not call it StreamYard. I want to call it, you know, Entrepreneur Yard. Mm -hmm. And and I'm going to focus on that. StreamYard may say, okay, we'll sell you a license. You know, you're going to pay us $15,000 a month, but you right. can sell as many licenses under that for whatever pricing you want. Mm -hmm. And so, again, you can think big or small. White labeling is something that you can, and, and what's the harm in going to ask somebody? And they, what's the worst they could say? No, have right. you lost your mind? Like, okay, <laughs> fine, you know? Yes. I love that. I, I appreciate you explaining it and, and, and in detail and, and giving some other examples in, in different, uh, different industries. Cause that, that definitely frames it up. So I've appreciated the, the conversation. I know that the audience is going to get tremendous value from it. Aria, where can people find you if they want to look you up and, and find more information about you? Sure. So I'm going to, I'm going to hit them with four different locations. Okay. Number one, if they want to listen to another podcast, um, inside the lines then is my podcast. If they are uh, want social media, Instagram is the best uh, platform for me. So REA, the businessman. And then the two websites where they can learn more about me is futurefundme.com or solutionadvisory.com. Awesome. I appreciate you. Appreciate you sharing. Appreciate you being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Have an amazing rest of your day. Rise, fight, love, repeat. Get after it. And I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Morning Fire for Entrepreneurs podcast. You now have the knowledge, but without action, knowledge is useless. Choose to act. Choose to step into your greatness and unlock that hero inside of you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review so more entrepreneurs can hear this message. If you absolutely love this podcast, which I hope you do, then share it up with someone you know who might see benefit from it. Become that beacon of change and together we can impact the world.